Lord, uh, we do acknowledge you as we come before your word, and we do ask that you would give us insights into your word, that you would teach us what you are saying and what you are doing and what you are always up to in the earth with your people and with your, um, your purposes for history and um, culture and nations and peoples and individuals even. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to see and receive what you have for today and give me words that are your words and remove all other things. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we'll be talking about culture. Stephen did a great alley-oop this morning um, talking about dark side of culture, world's cultures, right? Hopefully I'll be doing the light side of the, of the force, right? <laughs> um, the, uh, no, the culture of the kingdom, right? <laughs> That's not some dualism for you. I don't know what it is. Um, but the city of God specifically um, has been a topic uh, that I've kind of given a lot of thought to recently, and I have a lot more thought to give it. So um, these are just some of the musings and some of the, the findings um, that I've kind of rolled around. Uh, but what I'd like to share with you the uh, idea of paideia. And if I say paideo or whatever, it's because I memorized the incorrect pronunciation. I'm trying to correct myself. So it's paideia, if anybody's interested. Um, I would like to kind of offer this word um, to you. It's a Greek word and uh, kind of gives an idea that gives a little bit more depth to some very commonly uh, memorized verses. Uh, the first one we could look at is 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Very popular verse, very common to be memorized because it's, it's a proof text, if you will, of what scripture is. It's scripture speaking of itself. But this word training is the word paideia. Um, so training is an aspect of it. Uh, there's a number of other words that are translated um, from paideia, like chastisement, discipline, and we'll see a couple of the other ones, but um, there's a depth to it that I want to try to draw out to kind of paint a different picture. But that training in righteousness um, uh, is, is important to understand. Uh, but we'll see in a few minutes, it's a much richer word. But the word of God is the one doing it. So the scripture is the one doing this paideia in righteousness. That's important to note in this verse. Next verse, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the word, or the Lord, excuse me. Discipline is paideia, and it is uh, a commandment, therefore, fathers, to bring your children up in the paideia and instruction of the Lord. So, getting a, a little bit more um, personal, the exhortation is very specific. Um, to fathers and the way they relate to sons. Uh, let's see. I guess I could define the word paideia. It's, uh, it's on another slide too. The depth of the word specifically, it's a Greek word that is loaded. Okay? There's lots of words that the apostles used to describe the truths of God okay? that were loaded words in Hellenistic culture. One is that's very famous is logos. That was a very concrete philosophical idea, and then John is using it to describe Jesus Christ. The Logos became incarnate and dwelt among us, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos was, was God, was with God um, in the beginning, and he created all things. 
that was revolutionary because it was such a loaded word. The Greeks would have literally gone, what? It's, there, is a, there is a personal dynamic, an actual enfleshment of such an impersonal idea, the logic and divine mind of the impersonal universe that kind of makes things orderly and we can kind of start to perceive it. That's this ethereal logos concept. And you're making the claim that it became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the idea of a loaded term um, being, um, I don't want to use the word hijacked exactly, but uh, being employed by, uh, by the redefined and reapplied in the light of Christ by the apostles. Paideia is one of those words. It was the, in Hellenistic culture, which was Greek culture that, you know, encompassed the whole world, it was the process, if you will, um, and manner of instruction and training and so forth that uh, a youth or a um, newly conquered territory would become Hellenized, right? They'd be enculturated. They'd been brought into the culture of Greekdom <laughs> or the Greco-Roman world, if you will, Hellenism, as it were. So that's this word paideia. And so when we hear the exhortation of fathers are to bring their children up in the paideia of the Lord, there's a culture of the Lord that's being, um, that's being referenced. The backdrop and the uh, presupposition is a culture of the, of the Lord. We'll also see it here in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Obviously, talking about Christ. In your struggle against sin, since you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline or paideia of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline, or paideia, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Heavenly Father is the one that's disciplining in this one. So we have Heavenly Father disciplining sons, and natural fathers disciplining sons, and the Word of God disciplining the man of God, all by way of paideia in that vein. So that's important to understand that this is more than just discipline for the sake of, it's more than spankings for the sake of spankings, right? It's more than just um, trying to correct and rebuke and whatever. There's actually a very serious purposed motive and world that God is trying to bring us into. It's his world. It's his city. It's his culture. That's what we're being disciplined according to. And there's a, it's just so much more than just trying to get you to clean your act up and, you know, a pietistic view of, you know, just a little bit more churching up or a little bit more cleaning up. I'm just going to wash myself. I'm really dirty because of sin, but we'll just get cleaned off. It's way more than that. It's to become a different person, a new man, part of a new creation, part of the city of God. And there is a culture. As all cities contain culture, there is a culture of the kingdom, of the city of God. And um, so we'll, we'll continue to look at that. So I don't want to beat Paideia to death, but that's, that's what that word means. And I hope it kind of will take those passages to a different 
end in your mind, because I, I always found that was very helpful. Let me make sure I didn't miss anything also. Yep. Yep. All right, we got those. Great. And I was writing this all the way to 1 o'clock, so I apologize. I'm not... I'm just going to make sure I don't miss anything. I guess the multi-generational succession would be the only other point that it is from fathers to sons is very much um, part of that design of how we pass the culture of God's kingdom on to the next generation. It's entrusted to us as fathers to do so. So, what is God's kingdom like? Well, when we're talking about culture, when we're talking about what is the culture of the kingdom, we have to understand that we're actually commanded to do it. There's a mandate that's inherent in all of creation, all of the image bearers, secular or unregenerate or regenerate. All men have been given a dominion and cultural mandate. Um, because of sin, that got sidelined and perverted <laughs> in, a lot of real, in a lot of real ways. And Christ does redeem us to that place of dominion and purpose and mission. Um, he, we were having the discussion this weekend, which was just really, it's good imagery. That in the garden, um, you get the dominion mandate, which we'll look at here in a second. But then when Christ is resurrected, he appears in the garden as a gardener. And he's the second Adam at this point, right? He's, he's the resurrected Lord. He is the Adam that brings the kingdom to us, but delivers us from sin and death and is conquering and victorious, right? By his blood, we're cleansed and we are filled with his Holy Spirit. Now it's a new creation, the dawn of a new day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he appears to Mary as a gardener in a garden. The garden was brought back into the dominion of man because of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay a garden. It develops. It's cultivated is a very key word. It's cultivated and it's brought, a culture is brought forth from it. Dominion is exercised over it. Technologies are advanced. Um, glorification occurs in this garden to make it the city of God. But turning to Genesis 1, we see the dominion mandate. And uh, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are called to take dominion and subdue the earth. Every man is called to do that. But because of sin, as we've already referenced, there have been many abuses and many dominations, if you will, that have been perverted and wicked in history. But Christ's work, Christ's new creation, is man redeemed. Man redeeming that dominion. Man exercising it in a redeemed mindset, in a redeemed purpose, and a redeemed vision of the kingdom come, but the city of God to be. So it's a gen, uh, Genesis 1 is a generic command for all men, which is why even unregenerate men 
Namely, let's say, Cain. <laughs> After killing his brother Abel and having a conversation with the Lord, the Lord marking him, the Lord calling him out, and uh, I believe we could even say God cursed him in that sense. Um, he said, my pain is too much to bear and so forth. Woe is me, feeling sorry for himself and not really repenting. So he goes out, and what's the first thing he does? Because he's scared of everyone else around him. He builds a city. He builds walled cities. Why? Because it's in his DNA. <laughs> it's in his DNA to build cities. Now, he was doing it for motives and mindsets and worldviews and paradigms of fear of other men versus faith and uh, glorification of the creation. He was entrenching himself to be opposed to all of creation and to remain and survive as in opposition, whereas we, the uh, redeemed man, would be building cities to welcome the creation into fullness of life, into its God-ordained purposes. It's a very solid fabric, but man, even unregenerate man, builds cities. So what is culture? Okay, that's kind of where we need to turn. We've got this idea of garden to cities, and we see unregenerate man exercising that progression. But culture, as Stephen stated earlier, has a lot to do with the mind. It has a lot to do with the way you think about things. It has a lot to do with how we share ideas. Okay, Cornelius Van Til, really awesome guy. This is about the only quote that I could actually ever <laughs> properly render. He's... he's really a brain. It's very difficult to wade through Van Til, but it's worth the effort, I guess. Uh, culture is religion externalized. And I don't know if he was the first person to ever say that, but he's the one that the internet likes to lay claim to giving, making that popular, that idea popular. But culture is religion externalized. That's an interesting thought, and I've, I've often pondered it. Religion can be a personal thing. You can have your own personal religion. And indeed, as Stephen pointed out this morning, everyone is full of faith. Everyone is operating on religious affections and principles. There is no neutrality. You will be religious inherently by the fact that you're an image bearer of God. You will uh, develop habits, patterns, liturgies, um, religious affections, faith, visions of the future, expectations, hopes, dreams, the whole nine yards, you will have, and doctrines and laws and so on and so forth. Why? Because you're an image bearer. <laughs> you're an image bearer of God. And God made all, man to have, all men to have that capacity. And in sin, we've perverted, of course, but everybody's religious. But when religion goes beyond my own personal experience and expression... And it becomes shared, externalized, common. That's when culture starts to develop. Culture is essentially the product of a shared religion. When people hold common affections, values, and intentions, and ex expectations, they will cooperate with one another in such a way as to achieve common goals. This is a function of dominion. Everybody's going to produce culture. Why? Because it's just the way man takes dominion. It's the way you get more efficient. It's the way you develop technologies. It's the way you beautify and take the and glorify the raw materials of creation, reconstitute them, have a little waste product here and there, and maybe even learn how to use that waste product, but then you have this new thing. Okay? There's always byproducts of recreation, but there's this new thing that comes out of it as well. And that 
is one example of culture. There's also systems of economics. There's also uh, doctrines of how to educate. There's systems of government. There are, um, honestly, manners. <laughs> you would develop manners based on your worldview and based on how you value human life, how you value the rest of the creation, what you perceive your human interactions to have the purpose of. Why would I talk to Stephen Leopold on a weekend? You know, What's the purpose? If we have a common purpose, then we would probably have a lot more fruitful conversation. And in fact, it might inform and change us and mold us as one man sharpens another, so, um, or as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We would develop a culture, common affections, values, thinking patterns, worldviews. This is how dominion is done. So dominion and culture, the dominion mandate and the cultural mandate cannot be separated. They are one and the same, but they're more of a logical extension. The cultural mandate is more of a logical extension, practical extension of the dominion mandate. You will develop culture in taking dominion. Hopefully that's clear. That kind of just gets the terminology out there because I'll be rolling around that um, terminology a lot. We are always expectant and hopeful creatures with longings that echo back to the garden and point forward to the new creation in the city of God. Even unregenerate man, God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. We have longings so deep and so wide and so mysterious that we don't know what to do with them except function the way that we're called to function in faith, hope, love, dominion. These are common to man, culturally, so on and so forth. I want that to be very, very clear. I hope I've not beaten a dead horse there. But all men, even unregenerate men, long for the city to be. That's why utopian visions are, are common to man. Every new philosopher, every, uh, well, nothing's new under the sun, every repetition of bad ideas and good ideas will have, if they're, if they're truly influential, if they're going to have any sort of stay power, they have to have a teleology. They have to have a purpose and an end goal that we're shooting for. That's what the future holds. This is what progress looks like. This is where we're going. Come on, everybody, get on board. <laughs> Let's go for it. You know, every religion, major religion, every ideology, every secular um, philosophy, statism was cited this morning. Every statist doctrine has parties that all have a little bit different view of how, where we're going and how we get there, right? That's common to man. We all do that. Consummate society visions. Genesis 2, this kind of uh, gives a little bit more um, scriptural bearing to uh, the cultivation idea. And I do want to paint a little bit deeper of a picture of the garden itself before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Genesis 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, Pishon, whatever, sorry, not the best pronunciation guy. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. And the Lord, uh, here we go. The name of the second river is the Gihon, or Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, let's see. I put the man, I swore there was the word cultivate in there, and I must have missed it. I must have read right past it. To work it and keep it. There it is, verse 15. To uh, put the man in the Eden to work it and keep it. So, man was given all he needed to glorify creation. He had raw material and resource. He had law and government, and he had a mandated mission to cultivate and exercise dominion. These ingredients, along with his helpmate, the Eve, the woman, create the opportunity for culture. Because you can't really have a culture by yourself. You've got to have more than one people to have a culture. <laughs> um, you can have all kinds of activities and good, fruitful labors, but there's not much culture derived except that you have the ability to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> um, I want to paint a picture of Eden and the garden specifically that may not be as common to everybody. So let's just do this really fast. Um, the land of Eden is one of multiple lands, right? We had Havilah, we had Cush, we had, um, what the heck was the other one? Uh, Assyria, and then the river that flows, the, the fourth river, Euphrates, it doesn't give a land that it goes through. But we've at least got Cush, Assyria, um, and Eden, and Havilah, okay? So these are different areas, these are different lands in the world, and Eden is one of them. And in the garden, uh, in, the, in the land of Eden, towards the east, there's a garden that God planted. So it was a separated section, a holy section, if you will, a, a most holy section where God met with man, where he placed his image bearer, and he um, gave his word, and there was law, prohibition law, and liberty, and fellowship with God, worship of God in Eden, the garden of Eden. This is a picture of a garden inside a land inside the world. Okay, that's how creation was structured, quite literally. And out of the midst of that garden, there was a river that flowed. And out of that river sprang four rivers that went and watered all of the lands that watered the world. But that, the source, the fountainhead, if you will, was the garden. That's important to see. If you can, it's not always seen that way, but that's very much what the text describes. That's the picture that we have. And it's also uh, important to note that water flows downhill. <laughs> so if there's a fountainhead of a river and it's watering the whole earth and it's coming from one spot, that spot's elevated. The garden was a mountain top, if you will. It was a high ground. It was a high place. And the whole earth was watered from that high place where God met and fellowshiped with man. That's the garden. What makes that so significant is when Moses uh, gets the pattern from Mount Sinai from God when he receives the law, and he builds the tabernacle according to the pattern that he was shown on the mountain. What do, the tabernacle is a copy of a heavenly pattern. Well, earth in its original creation was a copy of the heavenly pattern. Because we see the garden, the land the rest of the world, we see the tabernacle, the most holy place, inside the holy place, inside the outer courts, which were for the nations. The outer courts was for the Gentiles, to come to God and to worship God in the outer courts. But then the priests could go to the holy place, and then the most holy place, 
only the high priest once a year was able to enter into. We have a type and a pattern and a structure and architecture, if you will, of a heavenly type of sanctuary in the earth, which is exactly what creation was, or in the garden. That's exactly how the garden was laid out. So if we can see those two and see that, and then we understand the temple was a... um, a, uh, a more glorified tabernacle, stationary in the land that God, uh, in the city that God chose, Jerusalem. And David put all the specs together, got all the materials, Solomon assembled it. The glory of God filled it, right? And knocked everybody over, and Solomon gave a good blessing. Um, <laughs> okay. You also have Ezekiel uh, giving, ha- getting the blueprints of a exilic and post-exilic temple. Okay. But it was a heavenly pattern, a heavenly blueprint that was going on. Moses receives heavenly blueprints, Ezekiel does, we assume David does, even though it doesn't talk about that specifically, but he had an image and a picture of how the temple should be beautified and glorified, and he was always in worship. <laughs> he was always hanging out with God in the, in the tabernacle, so he had insight, inspiration by the Holy Spirit to create this pattern. Then we come to Revelation 22, okay, or 21, excuse me, Revelation 21. We have, at the end of Revelation 20's vision, um, the new creation and the new heavens and new earth and the new, and the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. Um, and we see this picture, this capstone of this timeline vision in 20 and 21. I think you can actually count 18 and 19 to be part of that same vision, whatever. But then there's a new vision, 21, when the city descends for the second time. It just descended in the end of that vision, but we're seeing it descend a second time. That's to indicate that this is a separate vision and the fact that it begins in the spirit, whatever. That's a that's like a uh, demarcation in the book of Revelation is the phrase in the spirit. There are four different visions in the book of Revelation. They are demarked by in the spirit. So John was taken away in the spirit to the top of a mountain and he saw the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the heavenly city adorned like a bride for her bridegroom. And he sees the measurements. He sees the walls. He knows what he can cite what they're named of, the sea of glass, which are the... the, the, um, uh, the Streets of gold, thank you. (laughs) Streets of gold. Uh, He sees the streets of gold, the river of living water, the tree of life, um, who, um, with the river flowing from the throne, the tree of life who has fruit bearing in every month, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. He sees the heavenly city in the light of Christ, glorified. He gets the blueprints, okay? Not for a post-exilic or exilic temple, not for a wilderness traveling tabernacle, not for the original creation set up and sanctuary within the original creation, but for the new creation, city of God. If we can see the overlap of all of those, we can start to understand the progression, the maturation, and the consummate vision, if you will, um, that we are a part of. The consummate vision of God's purposes in time, in history the new city of God. I I wanted to dive into that one just enough to kind of paint a picture here. So, I saw the holy city, Revelation 21-2, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I think I've covered this one. Oh, because it is a city, what's present in all cities? Because you have what? That's true. And what do people do? They, they, they do worship, yep. But they take dominion and develop culture. That's what people do. 
They develop culture. So in a new city, there would be culture. What does that culture look like? And somebody said worship, and I definitely want to camp out on worship as part of the most fundamental tenet of our, uh, of our culture, the new city's culture, the new Jerusalem's culture. Faith is, as we've already cited, and I probably don't have to go into this too deeply anymore, but faith and worship and hope are fundamental, and the worldviews and the beliefs are fundamental to the ingredients of what makes culture in any context. So our faith and our hope are rooted in Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the builder and founder of this city, whose foundations are, are made from God, by God. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. Everything that we would ever want to be or become or created to be and become and experience are found in Him. Our culture centers around the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our culture centers around our love, our adoration, our affections, our, our lives being united to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We are affectionate towards Him as a bride is to a husband. We look to Him as our leader, as our, as our uh, king, as our perfecter, as our lover, even. He is our everything. Our worship, our culture, fundamentally is Christological. It is only made possible through the finished work of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, His blood, washing us clean and uniting us to Him in spirit and in truth, by grace, through faith. It shapes and remakes our identity. And necessarily, as Stephen put it this morning, has to change what we think, our mindsets, has to change the way we practice and therefore will necessarily change the culture that we create. So, first off, Christ is important. Christ is the center. Christ is Lord. He's the focal point of our kingdom. He's the focal point of, um, and his throne room is in the new creation, is in the new Jerusalem. Um, it is around the throne in worship that the saints find their source of life, liberty, motivation, and vision of a redeemed creation. In the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate, we find the basis of our hopeful expectation of the future and the loving devotion that would drive us to complete the mission that we were redeemed to pursue. And it stems from worship. So if worship is so primary, worship, of our, worship and love of our Lord is so primary, how we go about that worship becomes pretty crucial. This is what's called orthodoxy. Uh, right worship, <laughs> straight worship. Um, like orthodontics, straight teeth. Orthodoxy, straight worship. <laughs> the um, liturgy, therefore, the rhythms, the patterns, the sequences, the motions, the, the content of our worship must be examined, therefore. So 
we're going to kind of wax liturgical here. And for the record, I didn't grow up in a heavy liturgy church, so if there's more to be added to this, please feel free to fire me an email or talk to me afterwards. I know there are some that uh, participated in a higher liturgy tradition, and I, you know, Anglican traditions or, you know, Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Catholic even, all of them are a little bit deeper in their liturgies than I've ever waited very much. I was never raised in that, so I was... um, Anyway, so this is my musings on it coming from an outsider's perspective, <laughs> if you will. So that's my, that's my uh, uh, disclaimer. But liturgy becomes super important when we're talking about worship of the king as, uh, as a function and fountainhead of our culture. So I consider liturgy, and I, I think of it in terms of sequence. We approach God on, let's take Sunday morning, for example. We approach God, we confess our sin and our need for him. He mercifully um, forgives us and absolves us of sin, um, and we give thanks. There is a call to worship where we now can enter into worship washed clean, and we enter in um, full of faith and expectation because we have been received. We have been cleansed and washed on entrance. And we will offer gifts, tithes, offerings to the Lord. We will sit at his feet and hear his word. We'll, uh, the ministry of the word is fundamental and paramount. We want to know what God says to us because his word created all things. His word recreates us. His word shapes and fashions us. Um, like metal on rock, like a chisel on wood. He, he reconstitutes us. He takes what raw us is there as, you know, image bearers, and he separates and he remakes us. We become new creation at the ministry of his word. And in the Eucharist, the table, the word Eucharist means thanksgiving, we find open and available invitation to come to him and to eat of his body, drink of his blood, become one with him. What, what we eat and drink becomes part of us, and we are eating and drinking him. Okay? We become one with him in a mystery, in truth. <laughs> um, I won't wax all, we're not going into the elements and how the different you know, ideas of, of the table is, but no matter what, that is what Christ said. This is my body, this is my blood. Um, broken for you and poured out for you. Okay? Receive it in faith and know that you have communion, you have one uh, union, common union is, is union. You are welcome to me, I am available, and I welcome all men to come to me. This is not for some elite class, this is for all men. As we feast at the Lord's table, as we're welcomed in as sons and daughters at, his, at the Father's table, um, we hear his good word, his benediction over us. And as the supper concludes, as our worship concludes, we are sent back as new creation, unified with him and each other into the world to extend that culture, to extend the laws and the word and the, the new pattern that we have received and we've become in the process of worship on a weekly basis in the rhythms and patterns of time um, we grow and we change through worship and liturgy and union with Christ. You don't get to know God and come near and hear his word and not walk out different. <laughs> like he's that, his word is that powerful, that clear, that efficacious. He will, it, will be, it will accomplish everything 
that it was spoken to accomplish. Anyway, we're changed, and we are sent back out into the world to impact the cities of men with the culture and life and, uh, and gospel of the kingdom of God. The word gospel itself means good news. It's what would happen if Augustus Caesar conquered a new territory. He'd send out a gospel and say, good news, we just grew. <laughs> good, good news, I got new lands conquered, and now we need volunteers to go enculturate them. We need volunteers to go bring them into our ways. We need volunteers to go do stuff. It's a gospel. There's a call to those to bring the gospel, and it's a call to the ones that would hear in all the earth to participate with the new thing, to welcome the new members into the body, into the body politic, the body, the polis, the city of God. We've got, I really, really want to become mindful of my political nature as a Christian. We are part, the word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which literally means city. Okay? To be part of the city of God is to be political, yes. But it's politics of God's culture and kingdom. According to his law, his word, his worship, that's the, there is a political application to that as we grow in to our calling as the New Jerusalem. <laughs> so we grow into our identity as the city of God, descended from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what we look like all grown up in perfect, perfect glory. <laughs> all grown up. Um, <laughs> it was like a Rugrats uh, epi- or, you know, new season that was Rugrats all grown up. <laughs> Whatever. Sorry. I stumble on that one every once in a while. <laughs> grammar. (laughs) We have a destiny to become. We have an identity to grow into, and it is glorious. Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. That joy was us to receive his bride that his father has promised, that his spirit now works in the earth to perfect, sanctify, and ready. And we are that. That's really great. It's good news. That's, that is our, that's the gospel. We have a culture. We have a culture of worship and of belonging as a family to God's family. And as being even married is the ultimate destiny. We're betrothed at the moment there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb and the consummate end of this betrothal and readying process. But we're betrothed, we're spoken for, and it was, and the bride hath made herself ready. For it was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean. And that fine linen was the righteous deeds of the saints. It was given to us the grace and the righteous deeds and the, the fullness of what it takes to become who we are is given to us. We didn't create it. It didn't come from us. <laughs> um, but it's our job to put it on. It's our job to ready ourselves. And the Spirit gives ability to do so. The Word of God directs it and gives grace We don't come to the Lord of our own effort. 
but we have an actual stake in the sanctification process. We have an actual responsibility and obligation to participate with the work of God through his Holy Spirit in the earth, according to his word, to become who we're supposed to be so that the rest of creation is redeemed, receives the glorification. Jesus Christ is glorified by the glorification of his church. To be about readying the bride, serving and loving her, washing her, readying, putting on the righteous deeds of the saints, which God prepared beforehand for us to do anyway, to getting in the, the mix of all of that, it's worship. It's lifestyles of worship. It's lifestyles of creating and developing cultures of worship and practical ins and outs according to a pattern, according to a law, focused and centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. I just really want you guys to see that and wrestle with that for the rest of your life. I really want us as a people to wrestle with that for the rest of our communal life, our congregational life, our communion. Liturgy, therefore, is a fundamental aspect because it directs our attention and orders our expectations and it is biblically defined. No liturgy is a good liturgy if it's not according to the scriptures. <laughs> no liturgy is a good liturgy if it's not full of the Holy Spirit. The recreation that takes place in worship is the beginning of the new thing. At the beginning of each week, time itself being ordered and employed for the glorification of renewal. The river of living water that flows from the sanctuary of God's presence, just like back in Eden, but indeed in the New Jerusalem context. And his presence and his throne harkens back to a time before the fall, but proceeds from the future into the present. We are a future-oriented people, receiving from the throne of heaven the water of life to water the earth and bring refreshing to a parched land. The Revelation 21, we'll just read it because it's just so good. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In worship, we gather with all the saints before the throne and called down heaven in measures, week in and week out, becoming more like him and conformed to his image. The leaves of the tree are dispensed and we carry the blessing of healing to the nations. He gives us true food and true drink from his very body and blood. We are made new in him. What we eat at his table becomes part of us. He gives himself freely for us. We become like him and are sent into the cities of men to operate as citizens of the heavenly city, exporting the culture and hopes and life that we now embody in the spirit. Our culture is a culture of recreation. It's a culture of a new creation. It's the culture of the king and his bridal city. 
This is the city that we have come to on the mountain, Zion, the new Jerusalem, come down from heaven even now, making herself ready as a bride for her bridegroom. We know the pattern. Along with John, we see the city in word and spirit. We become more united with the Lord's glorious abode among men as we examine her streets of gold, as we find ourselves surrounded by her walls, as we drink from her river, as we worship in her earthly outposts every Sunday with the other citizens. We have a very rich inheritance. As we come to the table, let us remember, this is the Lord's table. It's the meal of a new creation. True food and true drink. May we discern his body and know our members, bestowing honor and sharing life with each other. Today, let us come and give thanks for the blessed hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, who gave and still gives of himself on our behalf. Let us look to the one who is reconciling the world to himself through us. Let us be emboldened to participate with the development of his culture and thereby the extension of his city's limits unto the ends of the earth. For he is worthy to receive glory, honor, power, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If the gentleman will come to serve the elements... Please come to the Lord's table.